Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. And we thought that uh, with the evidence that we got in the beginning, we we thought that the the difficult times were were over for the club, and we have a new period where we can be successful. Uh, that's what was attractive for us, uh, and that's why we decided to to come to Reading. Unfortunately, uh, the situation changed pretty quick. I'm Simon Austin from Training Ground Guru, and our guest on the podcast this month is Reading manager Ruben Sellers. Ruben gained a reputation as one of the best young coaches in Europe during spells in Spain, Greece, Russia, Norway, Denmark, and even Azerbaijan. He caught the attention of Southampton, who brought him in to assist Ralph Hassenhutel and then gave him the manager's job himself. In the summer, he took charge of League One Reading but there have been big problems both on and off the pitch for them this season. Ruben told me all about those challenges while looking back on his coaching career and ahead to the future. We hope you enjoyed this episode and if you do, please give us a follow via your preferred podcast provider. Looking in from the outside, it seems like you've got one of the toughest jobs in the Football League at the moment. So uh, points deduction, obviously this season, um, unpaid wages and you've given up your own wages, uh, redundancy letters going out just before Christmas. How tough is it for you? Well, it's not the ideal scenario, <laughs> that's for sure. No. Um, yeah, it has been, unfortunately from the very beginning, it has been really difficult for us in, in the situation around the team and obviously affected. We start the season with... Uh, Seven with nine professional players in the pre-season, two of them were injured and two of them were, goal, were goalkeepers. So in a pretty difficult situation. Uh, but from that difficult situation, we, we just promote some of the young lads from the under 21, uh, keep them working with us, having some difficult period in the pre-season, but also during the season. But as a product of that, uh, I think we have a established team right now, very young, energetic, that know how to win football matches in any category. And that's the best part of it, to see the, the, all those boys and the team growing in terms of uh, competitiveness and spirit. And unfortunately, I cannot control the things around. Uh, it has been a lot of surprises for us uh, in terms of, uh, also in terms of transferring players or players inside, in terms of points deduction. And uh, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, I think we, we learn how to go with those things and we learn uh, how to manage the things almost hour by hour, day by day in, in the club. Uh, I think the situation is, the instability around us is, is big, but I think the group of players and the technical staff are doing their best uh, yes, to, to keep the team in the league, to win football matches and to create an environment where, where we can go almost through almost every situation. Has it been something that actually galvanises the players and the staff? Like we've seen at Everton with their points deduction, they say it's brought them together. I don't see it like an epic or like a, something that it happened like now we go everyone together against the wall. It's more about uh, let's, let's focus on our tasks, let's focus on what we can do. I, I'm focusing on coaching and supporting them. They are focused. Their focus is in themselves, the, how to take care of themselves, the food, the sleep, the recovery, the proper training. And it's more about let's, uh, let's take care of what it's very important for us and uh, on that they have created uh, some good relations between them, the environment and the training ground and the game day. It's extraordinary how to see the togetherness that they have created uh, around them, but it, it has not been something special or epic or it has been more a let's do our job, let's do it proper uh, because it's the, uh, it's the only thing we're going to get from that situation. It must be hard when you get the surprises coming, though. So we carried the story last week about Andrew Sparks, the goalkeeper coach, and Eddie Nizwicki, head of development, who have both been made redundant as part of cost-cutting. The, the main problem for us has been that uh, the situation has not been set, has not been settled from the very beginning. So because if we start the season and then we say we have this kind of budget, we need to just reduce the staff because when you get a relegation 
and then you get a you cut your budget. Of course, it's going to be this kind of situation, and uh, we are going to modify some of the structures that we have in the club, like the restaurant, the food, the way we travel. We are going to have those points deduction minus four that, that we have actually. Then you start decision and you have the picture. Say, okay, we can work with this. This is what we need to do. But when it's coming, when you have a plan and it change and it change again and it change again, it makes it difficult. It makes it difficult because we are also losing coaches that have an area, a specific area, and uh, there is no replacement. So that means that the, the rest of the technical staff, we are going to get more workload and we need to do it in a different way because our workload is already high. So it's uh, difficult because you need to adapt and adjust every single time. Uh, but again, it's, it's uh, people working in the daily basics in the technical stuff of the place. It's nothing that we can control. We just need to, we need to adjust. And it has not only been Andrew or Eddie. We lost some other people for different reasons because some other clubs are uh, paying attention in our situation. So it has not been difficult for, for teams just to make job proposals to members of our technical staff. And of course, they prefer some kind of security in, in a different environment. So that's the difficult part because you you are working with the unexpected situations almost every single day. And we're in the January transfer window now. Do you know what the situation will be? Because I know you're under the transfer embargo, so you can't bring players in. But could you lose players, do you think? Well, we are uh, right now, uh, the transfer embargo means for us that we cannot pay for a player, but we can bring loans or free transfer in our uh, in our system as much as they fit in our uh, limitation for the salaries. So we have, uh, the EFL has been very strict with us on that. With, with us on that. They have reduced it, uh, sometimes our capability to get uh, players in terms of uh, wages, uh, but we can get players. My priority, is to don't lose players in this market. That's my priority because in I think we have a young and energetic teams. Uh, we have uh, almost double up the average of uh, scouts that we have every single game from the last three seasons in the club. So now we have between 40 and 15 scouts because we have players playing regularly in our lineup, 18, 19, 20 years old that uh, are attractive from some other clubs. So my priority is keep them together because we have been in a period where we worked really hard with the team that the things were not going exactly in our way, that we didn't get that point of now know how to win football matches. We lost a lot of points at the end, but we overcome the situation. We overcome those minus 10 points that we have from the staying in the league battle. And, uh, and now we have an established group of players. So the last thing we need now is just to start the process again, because now the time is called for us. So I think we can start the process again in the preseason next year where we can, if we need, uh, sell some players. But our priority now will be to keep them together. I don't know if that is going to be possible, uh, but I will fight for it. Have you had any reassurances about the playing squad? Uh, no, I think, I think obviously interest from some clubs are going on. We have some attractive players right now. And I know that we are in the situation that the club... Uh, in the financial side is not stable so I know if the proper offer comes from one of the boys uh, the club is going to let them go uh, so but I, I don't have any specific offer or proposal from any of them but I expect that some clubs will be interested from some of our boys and you had the situation in November when yourself and Mark Bowen the director of football actually forwent your wages that can't have been something that you would have foreseen when you came into the club. What, what was that like? I don't like to make that a, a big thing. So it's just a, a moment where uh, we will, the players got paid. There was no money to pay everyone in the technical staff. And uh, I'm in the position that I can wait some days for my wages to be paid. So I don't need that to be first uh, or the last day of the month. And just literally when it came, like it was think the greenkeeper or people around the club with uh, different contacts that my contact need that percentage more than me. So I just, we spoke with Mark and then we just tell the club that we can wait a little bit to get our money. We got, we got the salary after five, seven days. Uh, but it was more the proper thing to do in that moment. But say that there is, I think when you are in a leading position, you need to make some decisions. And uh, Simon Sinek said that uh, leaders sit last 
and nothing is what, what, what you need to do in those situations. So it's nothing, for me, it's nothing special. I know people have been talking about it, but I think it's the proper thing to do. And I will expect that any other in my position to do the same. And I suppose the strange thing is looking from the outside, like your training ground is fantastic. You've got the new training ground, the academy is excellent. It's always had a great reputation. So the building blocks are there, aren't they? The, the staff are very good, yourself included. So yeah. like you have got the building blocks there. Yeah, but you can have an amazing house and uh, and then to have uh, very cheap furnitures or very old furnitures. I, I mean, yeah, we have the training ground is fantastic. The uh, category one academy is fantastic from from the people managing the academy to the players. Uh, the technical staff is is good, but uh, the stability needs to come also from the club. I think that's that's what we need uh, right now for the future, because as you say, we have a lot of uh, we have a very good platform, but uh, we need to put that platform into a long term plan that we know what we are building and how we are building it. Uh, sometimes it's not about the building or about the facilities. Sometimes it's about how do you make it work together. So, and I think we, a lot of us, we will change our uh, part of our facilities or part of the setup to be able to have a little bit of more stability in the financial side and have a better long-term plan just to be more calm and stable in the daily routine. So I think the, don't misunderstand me, but I think the facilities, and this is the easiest way because it's just to build something. But the real thing, uh, the real thing on that is to build a culture inside the club to make people to feel safe and develop themselves. And I think that uh, it's just difficult now in this situation. Do you know anything about the ownership situation? What might happen there? No, no. no. And I, the thought, I just uh, decided some months ago to get myself out of that because it was causing me a lot of distraction from the football side and uh, to pay attention into the players, games, staff, trainings, analysis. So I decided to stop because uh, it had been a lot of noise about that. Uh, I mean, myself, a couple of persons that were interested to buy the club, then it became nothing more than an instruction. So I just, uh, I speak with Mark Bowen and I just ask him, please, when, when it's something, uh, that is going to happen, just let me know. Otherwise, I don't want to know any minor detail on that because it's not going to change nothing on my daily basics and it's the only thing is, it has been doing is just taking my time out. Is the project very different than the one you were promised when you came into the club? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is because not in the part of uh, wanting to, be, to do a very young and energetic team. I think we got that. I think it's the way that uh, we build that that uh, has been very, very different and the stability around what we were promised. And flipping right back to the start of your career, I think a few things struck me, but one of the big ones was how young you were when you started coaching. So you coached your first team when you were 16, is that right? Yeah, well, um, I, I'm from a, from a neighbourhood in, in Valencia uh, called Marchalenes and I played, uh, I started to play or a small team there called Parreta, actually. And uh, there was some kind of trend that when you become 16 in the club, you start to, to coach the young ones. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did it together with my friend. It was not the best season, but that, that's when I started. I played uh, when I was 16, of course. And then at the same time, I stand there and coach the small ones. And uh, yeah, that was the first approach I have with coaching. And uh, from that, uh, I have great experiences. I, it was uh, after that first year, I, it, it took for me two to three years to come back against to coach. But that was the first moment. And uh, I remember that uh, that period, like uh, things that I don't need to do anymore <laughs> or how to not do things. I think it's, it's kind of realization when you are around 16. Like maybe I don't have the attributes to be a professional player, but I want to be as close as possible to that to that grass, to the green, to that uh, feeling. So yeah, that was uh, that was my first experience, and I remember it with a lot of love, and also for the players and the people that was around me. That's very interesting about starting so young because we've had Rennie Mullenstein on the podcast and Pep Linders, both from Holland, and they also started at about that age. And I don't think that really happens in England. So, do you think that's a big help to start so young? 
Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't have the answer. What I really, what I really know is that playing and coaching just help to you to understand the game better. Uh, so when you are preparing a training session for the small one, and at that time in Spain we play with the under twelve, we play football seven, and then they have the they jump to football eleven when they were one year old. That I was working with a group of age to start to analyze from a different point of view how do you train things which kind of style do you want to play which kind of players do you have what do they need to to in this part of the process i think it's important because it just gives to you a different perspective of of things also help you when you play because you start to understand better the situations that you are in and you start to analyze your coaches also how they are doing things so I think it's in, it's important. My son, he's ten years old, and he he likes playing, but he also likes coaching and analyzing mm-hmm. situations right now because he sees me every day. So I think it's important if you st- the younger you start, uh, not only in the coaching in everything that you want to do, the most opportunity you have to learn more things because the period, uh, especially when you are in that age between twelve and eighteen, you are a great learner on that thing. So. I think it's important, but uh, sometimes, like in my case, it's casual. Yes, the environment just drags you in that. Uh, sometimes you are not as you don't have the fortune to be in that, and then you start a little bit later. But the sooner, the better. Has that helped Spanish players to be very tactically aware? Do you think the fact they do that coaching at young ages? Uh, well, I don't know if everyone do it. I think the Spanish uh, academies and the, the the setup is just very professional from the players that they are. Under under seven, under eight. Uh, also, the system that we have for the for the coaches and for the license is a very unique system because in Spain it's a public system. It's not like in England. It's not like in in uh, other places like in Denmark, for example. That is difficult to get in the system to get your B license, A license, Pro license. In Spain, it's public system because uh, in some years ago, like ten, twelve years ago, people just uh, decided to to go and make that complaint to the European Union. So in Spain, there is a private academies and public academies uh, for coaching. That makes also that the quality of coaching is better. So it's not anymore the parents or people that, uh, so it's people that even in academies that are not professional are specialized in, in coaching uh, young talented players. And I think that system also helps the players because if you see a training in some small clubs in, in Spain, you will see a very organized training with very clear concepts, players actually buying it. So I think the system in Spain is different. I think that's why it helps also the players to to arrive into the age of 16, 17, 18 with a very good knowledge and platform to become a professional player. I think you can also get your badges, can't you, at much younger ages in Spain? Because I'd speak to Carlos Cuesta, I think he had his pro license at 24 25 which i don't think you can do in yeah I, I also got mine uh, when i was 25 oh did you right yeah wow. yeah uh well i have a different uh, a different approach on that because i'm i'm bachelor in physical science and sport and in the time that i finish i because i i make my specialization in football uh actually you can make the wefa b and the wefa a uh, in combination with your car- with the career because some of the themes and topics were the same and it was just the UEFA Pro where we need to spend more time. So, yeah, because the system is public. So right now, uh, it's just like uh, you want to study um, another different profession or in the university or, or in the professional side. So that's why you can get it uh, younger. Okay. And you think that's beneficial to be able to say, get your pro license at 24 like you did? I think it's beneficial because it's democratic. It opened the football for everyone. So everyone that has the dream to be a coach and uh, put an effort, they can they can just go to the academy, public system, private system. They can just attend to the classes. They can just uh, do that, and then makes that they open more opportunities. So that makes that everyone can do it. You don't need to be a former football player. You don't need to be a a base before of that. So you just, if you want to do, you want to coach, you just go there, make the examination from the very beginning start with the basic course and then you grow on that and then you find your opportunity. And uh, that makes that uh, we have some UEFA pro coaches leading under 16, under 18 teams, but this also makes a powerful market for the Spanish coaches because you know the competition between us and 
is not reduce it into a number of persons. It's just basically open to almost everyone who has the ability and the willingness to, to want to coach. I think that makes you better because the market is bigger than in any other place in the world. And the other th- big thing I noticed about the start of your career was the amount you travelled, which was unbelievable. I'll probably miss some countries out, but Russia, Azerbaijan, Norway, Denmark, obviously Spain, and then England. So that seemed quite incredible at such a young age to be willing to go to so many countries. We started in Greece. We oh, great, right. In Greece. I yeah, yeah, we started yeah. in Greece in 2008. It, it can sound crazy, but uh, I live in... I live in Valencia since I was born until I was uh, 20, 25, actually. And I, I moved out when I got the first call from Aris Thessaloniki. So I will not say that it was never in my plan to work abroad, but it was also not expected to do it in that way. I think life comes in some different formats. And uh, in that moment when... When Aris Tesaloniki came with Kike Hernandez leading the project and David Rodri and Xavi Tamarita as a technical staff, it was a project when they find a very specific profile just to support the team in different areas. And I gave the profile and they contacted me and it was like a, yeah, it was like a game changer, a game changer for me. It was a life life moment where we have also a situation with my girlfriend and my mom and my wife now that. Uh, she was pregnant, so it was a kind of a difficult decision. But that decision to go to to Thessaloniki and to have that year there, uh, also a, a very difficult year, personal and professional, uh, just open what it was not, uh, not uh, the, the Spanish coaches, Rafa Benitez already opened for us in the England side, but it was not much open for the Spanish coaches. And it was the moment when Spain won the Euro and uh, the, food, the Spanish football uh, got that uh, international uh, well-known name. And uh, from that moment, I just, I think I just got the people thought when they thought about bringing somebody in technical staff or a coach or a member of technical staff, that because I did that uh, movement to, to Greece, I will cope with the new environments really well and that also gave me some new experiences after so i think it was that first moment that uh, that uh, just opened my career in the in my international career so does that enable you to learn a lot and also to progress your career by going abroad exactly exactly i think first of all uh, languages are important so my english was not really well when i started uh, in in greece but it was enough uh, we had a good experience, actually. We also tried to learn some some Greek. Uh, you learn to cope with uh, different cultures. You need to learn. You need to live in different environments. Also in your personal situation, living alone, living with the family. Like uh, some basic formats like going out and then find a house, find a car, find a supermarket. Uh, it's just completely different. But it's also actually open, open for me the international football that that means that uh, from that moment i knew that i can work in greece i can work in spain that i can work in any other country in the world where they were interested in in uh, having me so i think uh, i think it was it was a decision to make in that moment i think we made the correct decision and until now it has been a a good journey because this is something that's leveled at english coaches that maybe they don't move abroad enough and they stay in the uk too much I think that's quite an statement. Uh, I think uh, I think the English coaches are as well prepared as any other coaches in the world. I think sometimes it's just about uh, having that first experience. But I already spoke with some of them that work in Belgium, in Spain, and in other countries. So I think the the language uh, barrier is is over right now. And uh, not only the English coaches. I think the the world just became one and the market has become one and uh, you can expect that for sure more English coaches going abroad from now into the future. And we got to know you when you moved to Southampton, uh, I think 2022, and I was talking to Matt Crocker, who was the director of football at the time. He was telling me that Rasmus Ankerson, who'd come in with the new owners, Sport Republic, had been tracking you for a long time because he'd heard what a good coach you were. He'd heard of you in uh, Denmark, where you were with FC Copenhagen. And Matt was saying about the meeting he had with you in London, he said, I was blown away by his knowledge, experience and adaptability. 
So I wonder if you could just talk about that meeting and that well, uh, transfer. Matt became a really good friend and a really big support for me in, in Southampton uh, in my entire time there. So, yeah, the situation uh, was like uh, some years ago, uh, I moved from Karabakh uh, into the, in Denmark uh, in a team, uh, AGF Arus. Uh, one of the uh, one of the great decisions that I have made because I, we had a fantastic project in Karabakh, but I have I want to be a coach and a manager in the future, and I thought that was a big movement. In some point in my in my time in AGF, uh, Rasmus contacted me because they have uh, some vacancies in their system. Finally, we didn't make it, but we keep our relation, uh, football relation, uh, for the years after. And then when I was in Copenhagen, uh, my second year, it was a successful year, we turned the, the team around. They just contacted me that they were opening a process for uh, new technical staff in Southampton, if I was interested to make the interviews and go start the process. And of course, when a club like Southampton call you and uh, with the Premier League experience and a coach like Ralph Hasenhutel in front, I started with the process with them and the interview in London with Matt Crocker, it was nothing more and nothing less than uh, two football persons talking about football experiences. And uh, I'm 40 years old now, but in the time I was 38, but I have been already 13 years in football in some different countries. So I will not say it was quite easy, but when you talk about the topic that uh, you have been working for that amount of time in your life and the experiences that you had in different countries with a person that completely understands you, have the empathy with a lot of things and... Uh, we are talking the same language, it's, it's always easy. And normally the manager brings his own assistant, so this was very unusual that an assistant would be brought in. Was that difficult? Well, as, as I understood uh, in that process, the first uh, Matt was in charge, so they have some candidates, of course. Uh, Matt was in charge to make the first filter, and then, of course, the next interview was with Ralph. And then uh, with Ralph, we had the... Uh, the assume interview when we spent, I think it was three hours talking about systems, methodology, training, games, comparing uh, what it has been his career and his way to coach with my career and the different teams when I work at. So I, I didn't, I didn't know the the reasons about why they changed, and it was not in my interest because I think the coaches working before me in Southampton they were doing a good job. But it was not for me to to analyze that. It was uh, more about a club starting a new process, and uh, I I think uh, I think the process was right. Uh, meeting with the sports director and with the with the manager, and uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it was not for me to to come and to analyze. For me, it was just an opportunity to go and work with what I think is one of the best coaches in the world. And did that work well for pretty quickly for you? Yeah, I think with uh, with Ralph from the very beginning, we we connected together. Of course, we were not agreed in the hundred percent of of our points of view, but that's what you need to have a little bit different. But especially the view that Ralph has about football, with the high pressing, being dominant against the ball, the four to two as a main system. Uh, I think we pretty quickly connect on that, and then uh, from the very beginning, he gave me a lot of. Uh, freedom to manage the daily basics of the team and uh, I was very comfortable working with him. So how would it actually work within the training sessions? Would you lead the, say, the main session on the Friday before the Saturday game? How would that work? No, no, no. I think uh, I think what, what I created uh, there it was an organisation for Ralph to to don't take the daily basic trainings and uh, together with uh, Richard, who was the, the other assistant coach and Carl Martin, so we create the structures in the the structure in the day for Ralph just to step in get the information uh, check the trainings with certain distance and step really when it was important and then of course uh, he was leading all the tactical aspects and the and the minus one training so that uh, that never changes was just to for me as I understood the job with Ralph it was just to take the lead in the daily organization for him to have more uh, freedom to watch the team from a different perspective and then make his stamp in the moments that it was important to do. So I think that it was how it should work uh, for a good manager in, in England. And it always seemed a very innovative club to me. So you had the Southampton playbook, which was interesting, the kind of style of play for the whole club. 
you had the individual coaches. Carl Martin was like, uh, was he an in-possession coach mainly? Yeah. It was all quite innovative and interesting, I thought. I think Matt Crocker uh, did it in the FA and also in Southampton. He has a very clear idea of how it, uh, a technical staff should be with uh, everyone working as a unit, but everyone having different competences. So in that structure, uh, let's say we have a Ralph who was leading the process. We have a Richard who was the assistant manager who was leading in terms of tactics and support to Ralph. Uh, you have uh, myself who was leading the organization for the daily basics and uh, supporting the teams against the ball. We had uh, in that moment Carl Martin working in, in possession and then we have Alex Clapham working with the, with the set mm -hmm. plays. Uh, and that was the setup. Uh, I, I don't know it, if it's innovative. I know it's a very organized setup. That from that, but again, from that setup, you need to find the synergies and the moments where you can give your input and then you can give your information. And then it's at the end of the day, it's for Ralph to make was for Ralph to make a decision. And I think it worked at, uh, in the time that we were together. Have you taken some of that now? That individual approach and the specializations. Of course, I took a lot from that organization and uh, even in Southampton when, when I need to take the team for the last part of the season. Also, reading in a different way because the resources are a little bit different. But I think establish some roles in the beginning of the season just help you to arrive into every single detail of football, individual or in terms of game plan. And I think people knowing exactly what you expect from them also help them to to make a better work because they, they feel that you trust them. So absolutely that kind of model, I took a big part of it. Our podcast sponsor, Huddle, can help change the way you see the game. More than 35,000 football teams across the world use their pro suite tools to combine video and data into powerful insights and winning strategies via one connected platform. Huddle also offers consultancy services for high-performance sport with world-class experience and expertise in data management, player recruitment, and head coach search. For more information, go to huddle.com forward slash TGG podcast. And then fairly soon you were in charge. So I think you had one game before Nathan Jones came in after Ralph. And then you actually from November, you were in charge to the end of the season. So what was that like? It's never pleasant when you need to replace a coach like uh, we have with Ralph that trusts you to come into the organization and uh, you need to replace him because it's not only Ralph who didn't make his job proper. When, when you are failing, it's just the, the entire club failing. And that, that was a difficult period. And at the same time, in that short period of time, because Ralph was out on a Sunday and we had the game on a Wednesday, uh, you need to be sure that the team is competitive and people keep their standards and, and do their proper job, players and technical staff, because it was a lot of staff that also very attached to Ralph, what is normal. So it's a little bit difficult, the feeling there, because you know if you don't step forward in that moment, uh, you probably will not be competitive for the next game and the, the, the team will continue going into, into a direction that we don't want. So it was pretty challenging. Uh, it was pretty difficult to say to Ralph and Richard goodbye, and then go into the pitch and then try to, to get the team ready for the, for the game. I think we managed quite well the situation. Uh, we managed, uh, even we draw at home, we managed to, to go through in the penalties to the next round. To Also, it was important to keep players fresh because in three days we play Liverpool away. And uh, we, already, we, we were told already uh, the day before the game, I was told that probably will be a new manager coming uh, for the Liverpool game. So it was uh, a difficult period, but at the same time, it was a period when you know that you are in charge, you need to make things happen and you need to make decisions from the very beginning. That, that was the first bit of management that I had and I think we managed quite well due to the circumstances. And we just, when Nathan came, we just give him the, the team to start to, with his process. Was it a huge step up for you as a manager and a big change from what you'd been used to before? Yes, absolutely. I think it's, uh, I think it's a completely different role because uh, you come from supporting somebody, 
creating situations and spaces for somebody to make a decision to actually making the decision and uh, not being able to spend that much time to analyze the situations because you need to make decision after decision after decision. That's that's the big change of it. And yeah, I think those those three days, it was it was no, not difficult because when you have the, a team for like I had uh, that intern experience for three days, it's just about making quick decisions. But and uh, you don't expect to be there for longer. And now I expect to be that you are going to be there for longer. So you just go through this period and there is not, you don't have the experience of having players three, four games out of the team. So it's just about, let's go through this game and then let's see what happened after. Yeah. It's a completely different experience from my second experience on that. And do you suddenly have to become a big figurehead for the club? So you're doing a lot of the media work, you're talking to all the staff, you're creating the philosophy, aren't you, and the vision, I guess? Yeah, um, again, I, I will I will say that there's two separate moments. The first moment when we took the team after uh, after the Newcastle defeat, uh, it was only for three days. And then the second the second one was in, was in February when we took the team straight after the transfer window closed. And uh, we had that first game against Chelsea and then uh, the club decided to go with us until the end of the season. I think the first three days when we had the Sheffield Wednesday in the Carabao Cup, it was more about let's do the proper job for the three days because we know it's not going to endure on time. The second one was a little bit different because in the very beginning, the first couple of days, uh, the club was looking for a coach and we were told like that that we probably have only one game. But then the circumstances change and then we were told that we can be there for the, until the end of the season. And that is when everything changed because now it's not temporary, now it's not uh, for three days or for a week. Now it's actually you needing to lead every single situation. And uh, of course it's difficult and of course it's much different, but I think it's a uh, 24-7, especially for me in that moment, when you are facing the most competitive league in the world, with the the most the bigger environment in terms of media fans and the league that most people view every every single day in the world, and that requests a big amount of energy in the daily basics for you because basically you cannot make any mistake when you communicate and the situations for us in the club were exceptional also. So it was a big learning for me. And we've had a few managers, including yourself, on the podcast. And something that really strikes me is how all-consuming it is, as you say, that you can never switch off. So d did you have to go home and kind of warn your wife things are going to change? It's going to be 24-7 now. Well, I have, uh, I'm very lucky on that because uh, I have a family that supports me in everything. And my wife has been very supportive with me from the very beginning. And uh, the kids... Uh, the kids were suffering also that situation because it's not only the staff that you have uh, at home because I'm the kind of coach that I leave my home at six o'clock in the morning and I come back at seven thirty, eight o'clock in the afternoon, evening. So I try to to spend time of quality with them if that thing exists. But uh, she was the one that uh, in the very beginning she told me, do your business, we will be fine, we will be here to support you. And uh, in that part was relatively, was very not positive because we have been navigating together for 15 years that kind of situations but it was like now it's our opportunity and we see the opportunity like ours not like my opportunity so we we see it as a team and and our kids see it also and sometimes it's not it's not easy for them because became target in the school because mm -hmm. i was the yeah of course i was the the manager of the team in the city and when you win a game it's, it's good everything is fantastic but when you don't win the a game or you lose, then uh, it's not pleasant for them and the kids can be a little bit hard to each other in those ages. Mm -hmm. But my family was very supportive and we know what it is to live in football and we know what it is to the things in the football and around football. So, but we knew also the best, the best way to do it is just to be together. So it was not difficult in that sense. It was difficult in the dimension of it. Right. Yeah. What do you mean? The the fact it got so big suddenly. Yeah, it's the worldwide. Yeah. When you are in the Premier League, it's a it's a it's a worldwide. And then when you are when you are making a press conference and you are in, oh, my wife was in in the in the in the gym at uh, twelve or one o'clock, and then every TV is just showing your press conference. Uh, it's just uh, it's just just changed your life. You want it or not, I don't think it changed our life in the way that we are on the way that we act. 
but it just changed the repercussion that you have in the world and people communicating with you, people recognizing you uh, from the when the moment that you go to drink a coffee or for when you go to pick up your kid from the school. So we we felt that also in the social media for the good and for the bad, and you just need to learn how to cope with that. And uh, I I've been using psychologists my entire life, and and I use it as psychologists that. Uh, in that period, and we also get some support for for Anna and the kids because it's really an, an experience, and you need to to you need support to manage it in the proper way. I suppose people don't really think about that, do they? The impacts on their families. I don't know if people do it, but I I know it from before with some other people working with me and coaches that I work with them that uh, they, that this this situation is just it's just difficult. Because if uh, the things are going well and you are winning matches, then it's good because when people recognize you in the street or with the friends of your kid uh, or, or, or people just have only good words for you. But when the things are not going that well, it's, it's, it become, sometimes it becomes ugly. For, for Anna, for my wife and for me, it was critical that we keep an eye on the kids and we bring them the support that they need. And uh, we did it. I got a Christian, uh, there's a psychologist that work at, uh, a mental coach psychologist that worked for us in Copenhagen. I wrote him for the last couple of months in Southampton for the club, but also for me. Until today, I, I'm working with another psychologist in, in Spain that helps me to go through those things. And we also try to get some advice for the kids. So I think it's important. And I think for all the situations in life, and I consider these situations as a manager in Premier League like extreme situations. And I know some of the other managers also use the systems. LMA also with Jen uh, as a head of psychology also help help us a lot. I have Jen uh, visiting me like a couple of months ago to see if everything was going well with the kids and also. So I think uh, you cannot do things alone in, in the world of football and everyone needs uh, a good team around, uh, especially managers we need the teams around us to take care of a lot of things and the mental health is very important. And I suppose there's a good reason why managers don't tend to do Twitter and social media because I think uh, Michael Beale was the only one I knew who was doing it and then he's left because like the abuse you can get. You're so high profile, aren't you? So in the spotlight. Yeah, I think I think you have different versions of the kind of how do you manage that. Uh, I think you have the version of getting somebody to work with your social media because you still want to be able to communicate things, to be able to post things, to be able to like it. Or I decided to stop communicating and giving my opinion or even opening opening because uh, if you need to get any information from anybody, you get from the people around you. But most of the time uh, it can be consuming for you if you also open the media because the opinion of somebody far away who has no idea, just a bad word, it's not that you are not human, it's just that it can change your sense of the, your mode in, in the day and you don't need that distraction. So it's a strange because my wife actually is a specialist in, in she's a specialist in the social media. She has their yeah. own, her own profile with her sister and her own business in the social media. But I decided to, to completely stop that because I think, especially in the Premier League, your exposure is huge. You have the press conference the day before the game for 30, 40, 50 minutes. You have the individuals interview for TV uh, almost every month, uh, the media day. You have the post-match interviews. You have requests every week, media in Spain, Denmark, uh, even in England that you need to manage. So you end up every week, uh, especially you have two games per week, you have you you are end up talking a lot. So it, it arrives to a point that sometimes you don't have nothing more to say than what you actually say. So risking something in the social media to make a post for the fans like, uh, thank you for coming, today was not our day, they already know it, you don't need to, you, especially when you don't feel it or when you already say the message, you don't need to repeat your message three times. And I find the social media, especially for my case as, as a manager and as a coach, as a platform to repeat a message that I already said. So I don't find it uh, useful right now. It can become a little bit like being on a hamster wheel, it seems to me. You don't ever have time to breathe and think and explain things in, in depth, which is why this is nice to go into a bit more depth. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But I think we have the platform today with you that we, you mm. can ask and I can explain it to mm. you. But I will consider 
social media, but it's, it's at the end of the day, it's a media, it's a, it's a conversation between you and me when I can explain it. I don't need to go to Twitter and make a, and make a line of 10 Twitters explaining my philosophy or why I do things. I, we will have the platform now, so I will take that space to, to, to explain what I feel, how I feel, what is my philosophy, what is my life experience. Uh, I don't think I need to go then individually and, and repeat that. Right, right now, this is my, my mind. Maybe when the months or the experiences will, will come, I will just change it, uh, the dimension and think, okay, it's important for me to do it because of reasons that right now I don't think are, are there for me. But right now I feel it like that and I'm, I have enough, enough exposure with the media things that I do, even reading now in the League One, that I don't need uh, those platforms to create any more content. Going back to the end of that time at Southampton, could you have stayed on at the club potentially, despite Russell coming in? I was not interested. We, we got the team against uh, Chelsea and uh, we were clear of what we wanted. Again, a transition period where Nathan and their staff is out. The club uh, became, uh, they became waiting for the third coach of the season. The instability is, is all over the place. We end up, uh, we finish seven, eight, nine days before the transfer window. Um, so it was a moment where even the club was looking for a, for a manager with experience in the Premier League. Uh, so we knew we have a short period of time, but we also knew that if we had the, the chance, we want to go Stamford Bridge and make our stamp. And we knew that for that moment, we need, uh, we need something that the players can recognize that, so that something that they can recognize and was easy to adapt and adjust. And we thought that they didn't still have this pressing gene in the depth of it with the 4-2-2-2. And we thought we can go to Stamford Bridge and win that game. And we thought if we go there and win that game, we may change the rest of the season for the club. Because the club was really bad. We, everyone was giving us for relegated, uh, and it was February. So that's what we did. And in one point after that game, my conversation with the club, of course, I just kind of all or nothing conversation. Like I have three more years in my contract, so I can easily say I will do the job and then I will stay here for whatever happens in the future. But I really want to do it properly. It was all or nothing. And I told to the club, okay, if you want me as, an, as, a, as a coach until the end of the season, we will just make a new agreement. But my agreement is going to be until the end of the season. Even if the club stay in the Premier League, I didn't have Klaus automatical renewal mm. for that. So then the club was not just uh, attached to me in that sense. So it was all or nothing decision for me. And I didn't even think about being in anybody else uh, technical staff because I wanted to, to try myself and it was not an option for me. And I think at the end, it was not an option for Southampton either. So there was that point in February, was it, where you both decided that end of the season you would go your separate ways? No, we decided to go together until the end of the season right. and uh, see what happened. Oh, okay, right. But uh, it also, in that decision, uh, the club was not attached to me as a manager, whatever was the, the end of the season. Right, was yeah. the relegation or staying in the Premier League we can decide together at the end of the season. I think we were judged by by the end result and uh, by a by a club that want to change things around more than the performances. Actually, we didn't win enough football matches, and we know it. But it was a quite unique situation for us getting that team. I think your stock was still high at the end of that period. Uh, so, did you get quite a few offers for managerial jobs? Well, I got uh, some interviews from uh, a couple of interviews in England, but uh, also from, uh, from abroad, uh, one uh, team from, from the MLS. But the only club that really came strong was Reading. Right, okay. And what appealed to you about that project when you had those conversations? The evidence that we got it was the difficult times were over and that we can move forward into a project to have a big budget and come back straight into or fight to come back straight into the into the championship. That project with the three years with the three years uh, spell just for us to to work with the necessity for the club to go with a young energetic team, 
can compete, attracting young talented players, and I think that's kind of uh, where um, it's one of my strengths just to give that confidence for those young players. I thought it was a, a good opportunity. Also, as you said before, with the facilities that we have, with the surroundings of the club, with the fan base, and we thought that uh, with the evidence that we got in the beginning, we we thought that the the difficult times were were over for the club, and we have a new period where we can be successful. Uh, that's what was attractive for us, uh, and that's why we decided to to come to Reading. Unfortunately, uh, the situation changed pretty quick. And how would you describe your playing philosophy? Because we talked about all the different experiences you've had, different countries, different managers you've worked with. What's your own playing philosophy, if you had to sum it up for someone who didn't know? Absolutely. So also based on the other evidence that we have right now in the in the League One with the team or with the evidence that we have with that second part of the season with, with Southampton. What we try to be is a very energetic team that is a, a team based in high pressure. So we try to do it in the Premier League. We try to do it in the League One. Uh, we are the with the, the team with the smallest PPDA in the league. So that pressure per, pressures per defensive pass, per defensive action, passes per defensive action. Sorry, where we try to be protagonist, having situations where we can press and force the opposition to find the spaces that we can, where we can win the ball back and exploit the spaces in transition, and being a team that is good in possession, uh, but that, that try to find the quick triggers to attack. So we try to have those games uh, where we are very intense and uh, we try to be very front-footed. So that is the main part of the philosophy. Uh, we started with the system 4-2-2 in Southampton and in, in Reading. We also make the change in Reading in the 4-1-4-1 or 4-3-3, trying to keep the same concepts of principles, but adjusting a little bit into the players that we have and the league that we play on. But uh, the, that's, that's the line. We, we don't believe uh, that being passive or being just uh, waiting and expecting the opposition in possession uh, that creates something or being in a low block is the solution. Sometimes, especially when you play against the big teams, like for example, the game that we have against Arsenal, because of their quality, they, are, they just push you there. But we try to... We try to win the ball as high as possible to make quick counterattacks, and then in terms of in possession, we try to to be a team that uh, can play in possession using the dice four or the build up two plus three, but uh, with the topic of having quick attacks and trying to find the ball as quick as possible into the pockets or in the wide channels to to go deep and attack those spaces with the speed and quality, and being a team that is. It's very hard uh, when you, we made the counter pressure. So we, for that, we need the team compact. So that that is the main philosophy. Have you got any specific uh, training sessions that you put on to encourage that and practice that? Because Pep Linders was talking about the counter pressing rondo mm. they do at Liverpool. Yeah. So I was just wondering anything like that. Absolutely, absolutely. We I think we don't have only one. Our our training methodology it's not the same, but it's similar of uh, what Pep and Jurgen are doing in in Liverpool. Uh, because we actually came from the same base of Ralph Hasenhut, has had some kind of of the same, and that was great for me to meet Ralph because I I close the style that I want to play with, uh, with that high pressure, and then I think you, your playing style is linked with your training style. So the, if you see one of our sessions uh, now in Reading in that moment in in, in Southampton. We start always with a warm-up that end up with a passing drill, trying to get some uh, synergies between players, but also trying to work in some specific uh, situations, second man, third man situation. And then we try to put every time a different counter-pressure drill. It can be a counter-pressure rondo, it can be a counter-pressure possession if it's that different exists, it can be a counter-pressure game, but always encouraging in every, in every training, at least one drill, need to have that concept for the counter-press, and then going or moving forward, working in the different aspects of the game. But counter-press is always there because it just gives to you the offensive-defensive change or the defensive-offensive change in the, and you you work in the game as, a, as, as global, not as a separated uh, moments of the game. And for us, it's important to get advantage of this transitions. And I think a big thing in the game now is developing players. So th that's become a bigger and bigger focus for clubs and for managers. So they want managers who can 
develop players, particularly young players. And that's something that you've shown you can do again. I've been lucky. I worked with a lot of young, talented players in, in my coaching career. Uh, if we take the last five years, for example, uh, I worked with some of the young, talented players with Jakob Nestrup and Jess Torup in Copenhagen. Uh, some of them are playing now for the first team, did a really good job under Jakob in the Champions League, uh, getting Manchester United out of that group stage. And uh, when we came to Southampton, the project was similar, developing players like Romeo Labia or Tino Libramento, even Tino was a big time, a big part of the season out, or Gavin Basuno as a goalkeeper who, who has an exceptional potential. Now in Reading, it has been more due to the circumstances than the, but we, we knew that we wanted this young and energetic team. And it's something that I find very pleasant when you trust some of the young, talented players, you help them in their game, you help them in the individual session, in the video analysis, and you see them going from one stage in their career, moving a little bit forward. There is always a setback for them, so it's not a linear improvement. There's always a moment where they lose the track, but they come back stronger and accepting those periods uh, on them, I just find this fascinating, fascinating, because I, as I told you, I've been lucky to work with a lot of young, talented players. And two examples are Romeo Lavia, who's now currently in Chelsea, and he has also his ups and downs with us in, in Southampton, but uh, he became a really powerful midfielder for the Premier League. And I also worked with a young, talented uh, Rasmus Hoylund in Copenhagen, oh, and yeah. he needed to find his way out of Copenhagen to the Austrian league with for a league that it uh, was his kind of game with a lot of transitional game where he became a monster. And uh, from that period in Austria, he became a super player and now he's in Manchester United. So uh, sometimes it's, I find fascinating that part of our game. How can we develop individuals in a collective game and how you can make in your methodology in a training a drill for everyone, give the individual part of it for the player to become better. I also have the philosophy that the young players, when you give them the opportunity, they have that 10% extra because they are attached personally on you and they will go to a places that uh, maybe some other players will not go for you. And that part of that relation between coach player also become really powerful. Yeah, that's very interesting with those two particular players that you were talking about. So. Rasmus Hoyland, he's really in the spotlight now, isn't he? At such a huge club. Um, how good can he become, do you think? Rasmus is a, a learner. He, he learns a lot from their environment. From the time we were, he stepped into the first team in FC Copenhagen. He didn't have enough time, enough playing time. And uh, he found him and his environment. They found a league, like the Austrian league. Is We talked about the PPDA before. It's the league with the lowest average of PPDA. So that means it's a league of high pressure and high transition moments. And that was his game in that time. So immediately when he went there, he, he became a key player for his team, scored goals, win balls really high, intense, and that gave him the confidence to go into the next level. So that was, I think, in six months, he makes his move to Atalanta with pre Premier League clubs having him in, the, in their agenda. He went there, and another team that likes to play that kind of high pressure football, going in the front footed, playing a little, playing forward quick. He learned a lot from that Serie A experience. And now in the Manchester United, he's also getting in that level. He already made it into the Danish national team. So I think with Rasmus, you can expect him to be uh, rated in one of the best strikers in the world. But uh, I think he will become that when the team also, the United team will become more established at the moment that is right now. So with everything, as I told you, every development for a young player has a moments where they have this setback and then come back again. I think he's in a really good moment. I think he already scored that goal that uh, was just breaking that barrier for him in the Premier League. And I think uh, you can only expect better things from him in the Manchester United. It must be very hard for him. Every miss is all over social media, the papers it's talked about. But he's got the mentality, has he, that he can deal with that? He's a mentality monster. He? Uh, he developed a mentality monster. He has a good family that take care of him. His two brothers are playing for FC Copenhagen, actually for the first team right now. One of them was even in the squad when they played there. And his environment is really strong and he's a really strong character. And you don't have quite often that young, talented player that when we had him in, 
in Copenhagen with that kind of mentality. And and yeah, it's Premier League. Is uh, is the, the exposure is the biggest in the world. And uh, when he has a miss, everybody, everyone is just talking about it. But it's just part of the process, and uh, he will become a better player, and he will become more stronger in his, in his mind through this process. He has been brilliant in the, all the other competitions. He has been brilliant for for United. I think it's a matter of time that uh, he's gonna connect that uh, and connect that with the with the fans. Once he will make this crack, uh, he will. He's gonna be unbelievable. Just a final one. What are your own ambitions for, for your career and what are your ambitions for the rest of this season? Well, my ambition for the rest of the season is just to keep a team together that can perform and can stay in the League One and continue developing players. That is the ambition for this season. My ambition for my own career from my worst start is just to go to the very top, uh, in the, now in the managerial position uh, before as assistant coach. But I had always had the the ambition to be a manager in the big leagues and playing against the big ones. I th- I got it. I got a bit of it uh, last season, uh, but now I need to earn the right to go there and stay there for longer. So step by step, to working day by day, but I'm ambitious as as anyone just to try to get back on on that kind of game and try to be the very best. Well, good luck and thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.